Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Apple Store Upper West Side. Are you guys excited to be here tonight? All right. We have tonight uh, some guests from the Metropolitan Opera. And the gentleman that I'd like to introduce for you now, who's going to introduce the other guests in just a little bit, is Mr. Peter Gelb, general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. So without further ado, Mr. Gelb. It's not often that you have uh, Valkyries and uh, Nibelungen on your, in, in the Apple Store, I'm sure. The, uh, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here today. I've, uh, actually, as a, as, a, as a person who lives in the neighborhood, I, I come by the store all the time, and it's a, it's a wonderful place to, uh, for the Met to, to be because we are um, you know, not known uh, for the kind of cutting-edge technology that Apple is known for, but we are attempting to change that, and our new ring cycle is a perfect example of what we are doing to bring the Met into the 21st century technologically as well as artistically. The, uh, and our, our new ring cycle plays, as, as I'm sure those of you who are Wagner fans, and I see some Wagner fans in the audience here, uh, plays uh, at the Met in April and May. Um, and But for those of you who, who are listening in uh, uh, via this podcast and who perhaps are not Wagner fans, I should explain a little bit about, uh, before I introduce my distinguished guests, I should explain a little bit about uh, what the ring production that the Met is producing is all about and also a little bit about the ring itself. Um, our stage machine that... Uh, serves all four of the operas of the ring cycle is a massive set of giant planks that rotate and writhe. They're painted by ever-changing computer-generated projections that are interactive with the motion of the planks as well as being activated by the voices of the singers and their movements. The scenic images are sometimes rendered in 3D and include sometimes even live interactive animation. So for those of you who aren't aware that opera has become this theatrically adventurous, we're here to show you what we're up to. The Wagner lovers among us already know this, but The Ring is opera's greatest epic. Uh, it consists of four operas that tell the story of the creation and destruction of the world, of a world populated by greedy gods, conniving dwarves, that's you, Eric, and heroic humans which is partly you, Debbie. That's me. When you're, when you're human. The, the action starts with the theft of a golden treasure that provides limitless power to whomever possesses it and ends with an act of self-sacrifice that ultimately saves the world. In between, there are 16 hours of opera. <laughs> Richard Wagner staged the opera for the first time in, eight, in 1876, first and only time, but he was not satisfied with his results and he died before he could try it again. Ever since then, directors and uh, directors of opera companies have been in pursuit of a perfect ring. The greatest technical challenge of staging the ring is in representing the supernatural world and the special effects that the score calls for. Everything from swimming Rhine maidens to flying goddesses, rings of fire, and various other cataclysmic events. 
Also, to sing in the ring, you have to be equipped with almost superhuman vocal abilities and nerves of steel. Like the mythological characters they play in the ring, our singers are bigger than life. And with me today are three of the towering participants in the Mets' new ring. To uh, my far right is the genius who has undertaken the challenge of directing the Mets' new ring, Robert Lepage. He, he's the man who has harnessed new technology in the service of art to create the wonders that are taking place on the Met stage. And to uh, his left is one of the incredibly gifted and bravest of all sopranos who plays Wagner's greatest female hero, Brunhilde, the Valkyrie who sacrifices her, her immortality and ultimately her life, all for love and with selfless courage. Please welcome Deborah Voigt. And to Debbie's left and my immediate right is the greatly talented bass baritone who plays Alberic. He may not look like a dwarf, but well, he... I'm the shortest guy in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> Alberic is the dwarf who renounces love in order to steal the golden treasure from the Rhine Maidens, which forces the action of the ring cycle to begin. Please welcome Eric Owens. The, uh, so, over the past two, two seasons, we've introduced each of the four operas of the ring, because to do them all at once, unless you're Bayreuth, is impossible. Uh, we have, uh, and now we're preparing to, to play the ring cycle uh, for the first time, this new ring cycle at the Met, this April and May. So, I guess we should start with you, Robert, since you were the uh, person who dreamt this whole th thing up. Uh, I guess a, a good question to begin with is what made you decide to, to take on the ring five years ago or six years ago now, and how do you feel about it now as you're, as you're on the eve of the, of the first complete cycles? Well, actually, uh, this is a lot of candy for, uh, for a director. I mean, a stage director, there's always a moment in your career that you have to do the ring, uh, not only because it's a great piece of music. It's, it's, a, it's a great masterpiece also dramaturgically. You wanna, if you're a storyteller and you want to learn how to tell better stories, uh, you, have to do, you have to do the ring. Like if you're a theater director, you, you have to do Hamlet. And uh, there's a few of these. Uh, and you've done both. I've done both. But uh, <laughs> uh, the thing about the, uh, the ring that's so compelling for, for a stage director is that uh, we forget that Wagner was a great poet also. He wasn't just a great composer and a great conductor and all that. He, he was a great, great writer, a great poet. And he was a man of the stage. Um, and and if, if you've had the chance to go to Bayreuth and if you understand the whole, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the whole enterprise of the ring for Wagner, it's, it's more than a musical thing. It's also uh, uh, what he called the... the Gesamtkunstwerk, the 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 the, um, uh, the opportunity for all of the forms and all of the disciplines of art to get together. So he was very very much concerned by by the um, uh, using the stage as a gathering point of very very talented people for very very talented people. So uh, that's pretty much what I was interested. Uh, uh, this was an opportunity to really take five maybe six years of my life and and. Uh, try to, to bump into the most interesting people in this field of work. Well, and was it worth it? Of 
of course it was. It's a lot of work. It's, and then also we did it, uh, it was a bit of a sprint, a bit of a marathon, because we, uh, <clears throat> we staged four uh, gigantic operas, the, the four gigantic operas that formed the ring, uh, within less than two years, I think. It, uh, so, so that's pretty much, uh, I don't know if it's a record, a world record, but it's certainly um, uh, very, very little time to... Uh, to deal with such, uh, well, I think. I think. I think what you know. I think that's normally what major opera houses do when they do a ring. But the the difference in our case is that the uh, what you dreamed up was much harder to do than in, in any other opera. Yeah, company probably. probably. But then we had, had way we, we had way more time bef beforehand. Uh, right. We've been working on this for the past five or six years, as I was saying. So uh, we we had time to explore. Uh, the, the Met was very generous with us to give us the time to uh, workshop this properly. So of course, by the time we uh, got to meet uh, the singers, we had a pretty much idea what the vision would be. We should, we'll come back to the physical production, show some of the uh, uh, images of uh, the, the designs and so forth, but first we should um, ask uh, our singers how they feel now uh, poised to do the ring cycle in its entirety. Uh, for, for each of you it's been somewhat of a, a big journey, I think probably for you Debbie, the role of Brunhilde is a the biggest role you've ever undertaken, safe to say, right? Safe to say, and absolutely. So how, so how do you feel now poised on your, on your first full cycle, having, having conquered all three of the roles that you, th roles in the three operas that you sing Brunhilde in? Conquered, wow, that's a big word. <laughs> uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I tried to pay specific attention to where Brunhilde is in this journey through the ring cycle with each piece bearing in mind that there would come a time when I would do the whole role within a span of a week, and how to differentiate her physically and in terms of her emotions uh, from piece to piece. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how that works, whether what I've thought out, what Robert and I have worked on together uh, works within the, the context of, of a week. Uh, the cycle that I'm doing is a little, maybe a little bit more than a week. But I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's an enormous challenge. I, after the opening night of Gouda Demerung, my dresser was walking me from where I get off of Grana, my horse, on one side of the stage to the other, where I take my bow and I was running backstage saying, I did it, I'm Brunhilde, I'm Brunhilde. And it's just uh, it's <laughs> such an a, a enormous uh, feeling of accomplishment. And I'm very grateful to the Met and Mr. Gelb for giving me that opportunity. Thank you very much. Do you, uh, Eric, would you uh, tell us how, you, how, how you've uh, felt going through the experience of singing your first Albrecht? You had never sung, like Debbie, you had never sung, Debbie has sung other Wagner roles, but she had never sung uh, Brunhilde before. This is your very first I had never sung Wagner, Wagner before. Wagner at all. And, yeah, uh, so I decided to do it in a little out of the way place where nobody would notice. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, this year I'm a lot less freaked out. So I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to uh, the cycles. Um, uh, last, uh, last year when we opened the season, the new ring cycle, opening night of the Mets, you know, being relayed out into Times Square and out into the plaza. And I was, I was really just sort of, the night before, I got really kind of like you know, stomachy. You know, and I just, I was, and, and that whole day, I was just sort of like, 
because up to that po point in the rehearsal process, I was, you know, just sort of la 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 la, you know, you know, and then and then the whole occasion of it all just sort of hit me, and and throughout that evening, I didn't know how I was coming across at all, and and I just sort of was just hoping for the best, and 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 and, and luckily and thankfully, it it, it went kind of well, so. Uh, uh, you guys had me back, <laughs> and, 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 and here I am, and, and um, the journey of Alberich throughout the three operas that he does, he, he does uh, uh, Gold, Siegfried, and Gertrude Dameron, it's, it's, it's much easier than what Debbie has to deal with. Uh, to, to his big sing is in Rheingold, and then in, in Siegfried it's, it's not as much, and then in Gertrude Dameron it's pretty minuscule, but Debbie's got like the sort of fire, big guns all, all you know, through the whole week, so uh, you know, I'll probably pass by here in the hallway, and be like, "Hey, <laughs> how you doing? How's it going?" Rub it in, rub it in. <laughs> actually, actually, your two characters appear in three of, each appear in three of the four operas, but you never actually have a scene together. That's true. No, you know, we don't. Uh, this is the closest you've ever his, been. His yeah, image, <laughs> his image appears oh, right, in, in, in Divine yeah. but uh, we don't have any interaction. Right. And the, the music's always a, that that sort of ring curse music is pervasive throughout the tetralogy so yes that's your, that's your that's music that's my ooga booga music yes that's sort of you know <laughs> Wagner'd be so proud to hear yes, that yes thank you I'm, <laughs> I'm here for you I'm here for you and Debbie, and Debbie in terms of uh, for those people who don't know the ring so I didn't give much of a plot uh, summary uh, oh, you are not going to ask me <laughs> to do the plot of the ring no just just if you could if you could perhaps explain what what, what your since you talked about how you're going to approach doing all three operas that you're in uh, uh, together, how how you know maybe you could explain a little bit about Brunhilde, where how who she is when when the audience meets her, and what she goes through and how she ends up. Well, she is a goddess when we meet her, and she's also a bit of a tomboy. At least that's the way that I play her. She frolics around with her dad. She worships him. She uh, carries out all of his wishes. Uh, and then towards the end of the opera, she discovers what love is by observing Sieglinde and Siegmund and goes against what her father has decreed for her to do. And he punishes her by putting her to sleep on top of a mountain surrounded by fire. And she can, so that she will be a, a fodder for any man who happens to come along. And she convinces her father that it should only be a hero that will appear next opera is Siegfried, and it's a totally different uh, experience for her. She's been asleep all this time while Siegfried is, is growing up, and suddenly she experiences love and realizes that her godness, goddessness is gone, and the fear of that and not knowing how to react or respond, and yet here's this man, and she falls completely and totally in love with him. Uh, teaches him everything that she knows about everything that she knows, and he basically, in Gorodemerung, betrays her, unbeknownst to him. Uh, and um, it's a real painful journey that, that she goes through in uh, Gorodemerung. But uh, at the end of the day, she does the right thing by returning the ring to the Rhine and uh, sacrificing herself in the very famous immolation scene. Now, now when do they find out that their aunt and nephew <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm totally messing with you. <laughs> let's, 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 not, let's not go into the Wagnerian incest stuff tonight, shall we? I'm totally messing with you. Go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. 
The, uh, so when, when you're playing the role of Brunhilde, are you, do you become Brunhilde in your head? I think there are moments when that, that happens. Um, being an opera singer, you have to bear in mind all the time that what you're doing is very difficult vocally and technically, and so you can't lose sight of that too much. But when you find yourself on stage playing a love scene opposite J. Hunter Morris, uh, it's really easy to sort of lose yourself in your role, if you know what I mean. Um, and, but yeah, there's, there are moments in, in each piece that I feel very much connected to her. The, the end of Valkyrie, the farewell to Wotan is really... Uh, I, I remember when we staged it one day, I was just in tears at, at the end of it because it's just so, so moving. Um, so yeah, there, in, there are moments like that, and then there are other moments when you have to think, okay, this note's coming, and I have to prepare for that, and, and if that note's going to go well, then the several bars of music before it have to be set up in a certain way, and so you can't lose yourself too much uh, into the emotional side, but that's what we train for for years and years and years and years and years to be able to do. What, what is the single scariest, from a technical, musical point of view, passage in, in the ring for you. Okay, let's see. The high C at the end of Siegfried is pretty scary. Um, sheer fatigue at the end of Die Valkyrie is very difficult. Um, there's a kind of high, there's a scary high C in Gudadamerung as well. You, you can hear my theme here, high C, high C, <laughs> high C. Soprano's a bane of existence. But uh, interestingly enough, I, I, I have found Gutta Demerung to be the easiest. Even uh, though it's the most even uh, though it's the, Even though it's the longest, it's not as difficult vocally, and it's a, it's a lot more fun to play, to act, than, than the other pieces, and that's Have you actually ever totaled up the number of hours you actually sing in the ring? If I did that, my fee would probably have to go up, so we'll just... <laughs> So, that's a well, good. That's good. Actually. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll have that memo on your desk tomorrow. <laughs> I, 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 I always I hate to disappoint singers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Robert, do you uh, want to talk a little bit about the uh, you know sort of what made you dream up this set? And we have we have some images that we can show as you're talking. I'm not sure exactly which image, images will appear, but uh, yeah. Well, actually, you see the set there uh, that we see there. There are planks and they're articulated by some kind of backbone that makes it twist and turn and gives us all sorts of uh, shapes and forms. And uh, we managed to do the four operas with that. And uh, the idea came from uh, the fact that Wagner had written all these amazing leitmotifs. And of course, we all have a different number in our heads, how many leitmotifs there are in uh, musical themes there are in, in, in uh, in the ring, but uh, th those uh, what he does, and that's, that's the genius of the whole piece, is that he takes these these uh, uh, bars of music and braids them together, and does all these amazing things with it, and, and creates yet another shape and yet another uh, amazing theme. So we decided to do the same thing with the set. We say, well, why don't we create a set that is versatile enough so that if you change the position of the different, uh, uh, we call them sticks. Um, it creates a different, uh, a different venue, a different place, a different, uh, whether it's a grotto, whether it's a castle. Uh, in this case, for example, it's um, Brunilda riding uh, like a giant flying horse. Uh, this is an interpret a cubist interpretation of fire surrounding Brunilda. This is a, the, the staircase leading down to Nibelheim. So um, uh, 
so all of the, all of the components that you're seeing now are all created by the same sticks and the way we pivot them and group them together. So we wanted to create a set that would be as inventive and creative as uh, as Wagner's. Uh, uh, Wagner's uh, music, and uh, but it was important because we knew we were going to uh, deal and indulge into high tech and uh, really uh, ahead of the curve technology because we actually invented stuff by doing this production uh, stuff. Now that I see in other shows, <laughs> in other places now, but actually we had some very very creative and, and talented people work on this production, coming up with uh, new new resources, new electronic resources, new video resources to try to create the uh, <clears throat> the cosmos that we we did with the, with the ring, and. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it was important, very important that it had a kind of a modern approach, but that's, if you look at the costumes, the costumes are actually very, very classical in a certain way. They refer uh, to, to uh, uh, the, the, the period or the time that Wagner had set it in, in his mind. So we're, we're very, very respectful of the characters and the time and, and the almost uh, uh, storybook style uh, of, of the recounting of the, of the tale. But uh, it's in an environment that's extremely responsive and interactive uh, to what the performance is. Can you explain this incredible image? Uh, yeah, well, actually, uh, <clears throat> this is uh, the moment when uh, Wotan puts his daughter to sleep at, at the top of the, uh, of the mountain, surrounded by a, a, blazing, uh, a, a blazing circle of fire. And um, what's interesting in this production is that any element that's projected is not just a fixed per, uh, projection, it's an interactive projection. So that means that when Wotan sets fire, the fire actually interacts with him. So all of the imagery is actually um, activated by the movement of the singers uh, and by also the sound of the singers. At times we do have imagery uh, textures that are actually uh, that that move around or react to what comes out of the pit, whether it's the volume of the music, uh, the sibilance of the music, uh, the rhythm. Uh, so, and also some of the singers, uh, they're not mic'd in the sense that they don't, their, their voices are not amplified, but we do receive a signal to help trigger some of these images. So, for example, we have the Rhine maidens at the very start of the of the show that sing, and as they sing, there's bubbles coming out of their mouths as if they were underwater. So we, we came up with all sorts of um, uh, tricky little devices to try to uh, amplify in a certain way the presence of each of these characters. Now, the, um, that's Brunhilde hanging upside down in, yeah. the middle, in the middle of the set there, but that's not Deborah. I wanted to do it, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> This, this may be the first production in operatic history that extensively uses doubles. Body doubles, yes, we do. But, I mean, uh, and it's, it's interesting, uh, Debbie, that you mentioned that because uh, with time, most singers wanted to do the body doubling themselves because... Uh, uh, there's still a chance, Debbie. Well, people, yeah, there's still a chance. And that's what's interesting, what, what's going on right now. Uh, in the rehearsals is that we could feel people are much more relaxed about all of this. At the beginning, people were a bit tense and, uh, you know, not too sure. Should we walk on this? Is it safe? Uh, what does it express exactly? What are we in relationship with all this? And of course, after a year and a half or two years of performances, people now have an idea what, what, what it is and what it does. And, and actually, the performances are much more interesting today because people are more relaxed and more playful and more generous with the whole concept. When you, um, Eric, when you're in, 
on the set and, and moving around the set, have you ha you've probably had, it took a while to get used to it. You have a lot of acrobatic moves you have to do yourself. Right. Uh, and I was just thinking myself today at rehearsal, we, we did uh, the first few scenes of Rheingold and, and, and it, it felt so much more comfortable. And I was sort of scampering up the ramp and just sort of and sliding down because, you know, so I, I, I this, this was familiar territory. So you're describing I, the opening scene when you when you're trying to, to flirt, flirt, flirt with, with the, the Rhine maidens, maidens and I climb up and, and then they push me down and, and you have to slide and down. I have to slide down and climb up again. And um, and so this time around, I, I, I think I'm I'm singing it a little better because I just I'm, I'm used to the 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 um, uh, the cardio demands of it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's you 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 run up and down this thing, and your your pulse starts to get a little higher, and then but but I I found a way to just sort of pace it a little better, and and to stop maybe halfway up, and then scamper a little more, and 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 I felt freer today than I ever felt just because. It's like, okay, yeah, I know how to do this. I've done this before. And, and so I think you're going to get completely different performances with that familiarity. Right. Yeah. And Debbie, you've had a, a few interesting moments with the set yourself. Well, I have, <laughs> Mr. Gell. <laughs> Shall we discuss them here? <laughs> only, only if you'd like to. <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, okay, there, been, there were two opening night of Die Valkyrie, I'm standing backstage and I'm pumped up and I'm so ready and I'm just so excited. And I go running out on stage and I stepped onto the plank, La Machine, she's female, and I actually stepped on my dress and I slipped, hit the plank and went sliding all the way down. And I wish that I could have had a tape of what was going on in my head at that moment. But I played it off as the tomboy I'm supposed to be. And, oh, I meant to do that. <laughs> and then in Siegfried one night, uh, I'm supposed to be pre-placed uh, backstage while the planks are like this. And I'm backstage so you can't see me. And something happened. There was this giant crashing noise. And it was not the, the machine's error. We were told it was human error, uh, a cueing issue. And these things happen periodically in the theater and there was this crashing noise and there was just no way the music kept going kept going and they pulled us off of the stage and some stagehand ran up to me and handed me my spear and my shield and someone else came up and said just go out on the apron lay down and do the best you can <laughs> I thought this is our contingency plan it worked it, it did work. It's <laughs> shockingly, it worked. It worked. But the funny thing was the machine was sort of in this position. It looked like a cat that had been scared. It was like... <laughs> we love her. <laughs> the, uh, this project has also been a remarkable one in terms of the uh, cultural uh, connection between the uh, Robert's Canadian team, which is all based in Quebec, and the Met stage crew, uh, who have had to work together side by side over several years and find a language uh, somewhere between Quebecois and English and stage English and uh, have found a way have found a way to to work together because the machine as computerized and, and as advanced as it is also requires the manipulation by stagehands uh, who attach ropes at various points to various planks and, and, and operate it together with the computer um, so it's, that's been an extraordinary experience for all of us at the Met 
and I'm sure it's been an interesting experience for you, for you and your team as well. Yeah, in the languages, you forgot to mention the New Jersey accents and slangs that, that was very unfamiliar. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's been, and, and that's, I think that's the thing that's interesting, when really you feel that absolutely everybody in a production, uh, from, from the singers uh, to, to the creative team, to the, uh, the people who work in the shadows, all the technical people, and, and certainly uh, the technical um, the, uh, company of, of the Met, that have been extremely uh, generous, but and creative and inventive, but also very proud. And I think that's the thing that's the most, you really feel it. You feel that people, it's their baby. They're really proud to have this thing in the house and they, they care for it and they shine it and they polish it and put it back into the garage. And every time we, I was saying, my God, there's so many, pro at the beginning, there was so much debugging going on that I thought they'll be so discouraged. And on the contrary, they've been really nurturing. In fact, they've been really, really helping out. They're very proud and it's, it's theirs now. So it's, it's great too. Because we're asking them not to be technicians. We're asking them to be puppeteers, basically. Because this is constantly moving and reacting and, and uh, having its say. So. so Robert, you once said uh, that once you've done the ring, you're not the same person. No, you're not the same person, that's for sure. I could see that. I'm not the same person five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> How, how, has this, how has this changed you? Well, I think it makes you a better person. Whoever it is that participates to the ring makes you a better person because, as I said, you're confronted to something, you know, to a story that's larger than life, with voices that are larger than, vo than, 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 than life, and, and with, with uh, uh, themes and, and, and uh, emotions that are larger than life. And, of course, you, you, you have to confront it. And, of course, you know, sometimes it's clumsy. Sometimes it doesn't work. And you're confronted to your limits also as an artist, and everybody is, I think. You know, we, we all kind of, and certainly on this production, there was a lot of people who, for whom it was the first time they were doing a, either a Brunilde or a... So it's, 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 everybody's in a state of how far can I push it? And chances are you'll be bumping into your skirt or you'll be bumping into something and there'll be some... But, but you, you have to have the courage to put yourself in danger. And that's the only way... Um, art evolves if you put yourself in danger and of course you know you'll have to take the flack and of course and there'll be some amazing illuminating moments and and, uh, and we that's haven't take, we haven't had any flack for this <laughs> <laughs> no nope. not at all have you how has this changed your life Eric oh goodness gracious <laughs> if, if it has it, it's it's completely changed the trajectory of my career actually uh, I mean, who the hell knew me before this? <laughs> Seriously, it's 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 sort of it's it's bumped up my my career to a a, a different level, and uh, you know, after the Ryan Gold, my manager's phone was ringing, and, and these engagements were starting to come from places in Europe, and and uh, so it's it's just been it's been this wonderful challenge and this wonderful gift for me, and. Uh, so thank you for taking that chance and, uh, and, and having me. We wouldn't have done it with anyone else. Oh, thank you. Deb, Debbie? Well, I just can't imagine that I'll ever have the opportunity to be involved in something like this ever again. Um, not only taking on the role, but, I mean, I just, I look at it and I pinch myself and I think, oh my, my Lord, how did I end up in this experience? And um, it's, yeah, it's... It's been really daunting, and I've learned a lot about myself, about uh, a lot of things that we won't go into today. But um, it's been uh, quite, quite a journey. Sort of like watching your life flashing before your eyes when you see that. Now, we have um, questions from the audience. Uh, do we have time for those? Yes, sir. 
I assume no, nobody speaks German. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm assuming nobody, none of you speak German. And I was wondering. My last name is Gelb. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I was just wondering, you know, how phonetically you can re remember everything to be able to sing phonetically and not knowing what what the words are. Well, well we know what the we, words are. Yeah, we know what the words are, and and, and I speak pretty functional everyday German. I wouldn't call it fluent, but I, I lived in Germany for, for a while and, and uh, took German in high school, as a matter of fact. And uh, so, uh, so we're all quite familiar with the language. Uh, I think one needs to be when you're up there being a character and you're communicating, but it's not only what you're saying, but you need to know what the other person is saying to react to it. I mean, most of acting is reacting. And, 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 and so everyone on that stage has a working knowledge of the language. I mean, just as opera singers in our training in, in college and in grad school and young artist programs, languages are, are a really big focus of, of, of our education. Now, obviously, uh, in terms of pronunciation, everybody's pronunciation is, is, is different, but we always, we have uh, language coaches who work with the singers. Um, we have a Ger same German language coach who has worked on not only this ring, but the Otto Schenk ring, uh, who uh, works very closely with the singers as well. Next question. I'm sorry, you had a question. Just wait for the microphone, if you would, please. With this uh, construct that you have on stage, this complex construct, how are the acoustics affected? And how were you uh, able to get around the problem that the alteration of acoustics would affect how the vocalist hears themselves in the hall? I would think that would be a major issue. Well, you know, every time uh, we do a new production, the scenery is the missing piece in the acoustical puzzle. Um, and, you know, the Met, is I, better to hear it from the singers, but I think they, they would tell you that the Met is one of the great, even though it's 3,800 seats, it's one of the largest opera houses in the world. It has the most uh, uh, rewarding acoustics in, in general. And then the question is, of course, is when we do a production, a new production, the scenery is everything in terms of supporting the singers' voices or not supporting their voices. This particular production was designed with the acoustics of the Met very much in mind. In fact, Robert, and I and James Levine, from the various earliest, from the earliest uh, planning of this, were, were working together, uh, looking at the models. Robert was showing them, the, showing Maestro Levine the models, and in fact, uh, Jim Levine was so pleased with the acoustics. Uh, unfortunately, you know, sadly, he's only conducted the first two of the operas, and Fabio Luisi has taken over the, the final two, and, and will now be conducting the entire cycle. But I think it's. Uh, all the singers who are on the set uh, and the conductors who are conducting them all believe that if, any, if nothing else, the acoustics of this production are the best, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? It's like having a giant soundboard behind Absolutely. you. The it's sound wonderful. just flies out. And also, I, I'd like to say, too, that really good singers do not listen to themselves. It's, if, if we spent our lives listening to what we hear from various theaters, we would be adjusting what we do technically from theater to theater. You have to sing by sensation and by what you feel, and that's the constant. Uh, so that, that you take with you everywhere, regardless of if you have curtains sucking up the noise behind you or the, 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 the blessedness of having the machine to bounce the sound out to the house.
it's an interesting question because actually when I uh, was first asked to do opera, um, I've been told, I've been warned by most uh, opera directors that, that, uh, that actually they were all terrorized like I was at that time by opera singers because of course they're obsessed with their voices and they want to be heard and all of that and they hate directors and they hate uh, stage designers because uh, the, 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 uh, the set always absorbs the voices so the very first set we created was actually a funnel we created this huge funnel it was like what a happened to that? it was a loudspeaker <laughs> and uh, actually it was for a vatum and, uh, and, of course, that was a way to try to, you know, say, well, you see, you, you sound good. When my set, you sound good. And then the second thing we did was the Damnation of Faust, which is actually a huge glass wall that is, you know, against the proscenium, which actually pushes the voices into the room. So, of course, when we knew we were going to be doing something like this, we, we knew that we'd have to be changing so much. So it's, it's a lot of negotiation that goes on with the maestro, actually, to say, well, this is how I see it. And let's see how it sounds. And of course, then the maestro approves. Say, well, this is good, but if you move her just a bit more in this angle, then the soundboard works. Or this is this might be a, a bit too high. Or this is so you you kind of play around. So so the the, the imagery and the staging that we impose uh, to the to, to the actual piece uh, doesn't stay that way once you're in the room. Once you're in the room and the orchestra is there, and then you get you usually move things around until it it, it sounds right. And of course, no matter how good the acoustics are, there's always a constant negotiation between the conductor and the director about where the singers are positioned on the stage, with the conductor urging the singers forward at all times. Yes, sir. All of your historic predecessors have only had to act for the people in the opera house, but you have to act for the, the intensity of the high-def Film, filming that's going on around the world in theaters. How in the world do you do that? It's brilliant. We don't do anything differently. It's the HD. I, 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 I mean, we might we might be a little more nervous that day, knowing that it's going around the world. But uh, the the HD transmissions. It's not. I I, I just said this last night uh, at another uh, function. It's not. 4,000 people coming into the Met live to watch us make a movie to broadcast to cinemas. It's the hundreds of thousands of people going into cinemas to drop in on us creating live opera. It's for the people in the house. And it's up to the whoever's directing it for the screen or the people in the, in the control trucks to find these intimate moments that might play well on the screen, but it's all within the context of we are, we are there singing and acting for the people who are in the theater. I also find it exciting though too to know that the more intimate stage moments that can be lost uh, in a theater member who's sitting you know, in the top balcony is going to be seen on a screen and that uh, for me, ups my game uh, because I know that you will see if I drop my body because I'm not paying attention or you, you know, the sorts of, of moments that one can take when it's only for a live performance that you can't when you know that uh, there's a camera on you. But I think it's, I think it's challenged all of us to, to, as I said, bump up our game and, and learn how to be better actors and that is you know where opera is definitely headed it's not enough to do what we used to call park and bark it's uh, not not about that anymore 
and it's very rewarding for a director also because in the rehearsal room we get very intimate you know we, we work on characters and intention and emotions and things like that and there's some amazing work that comes out of the singers and then you get into the room and you're so far away and you say well yeah it comes across but it doesn't come across as much as we thought and then so you start compromising you start saying well maybe some of these ideas are a bit lost but what's so rewarding with the HD transmission is that all these little secret things and the, the, that you've implanted actually appear in close-up on, on the screen. So that's, that's wonderful. It's, it's a great way to complete the work. But certainly there was never any uh, request on the, that we make of directors or singers to change anything for the HD. That's true. They never say, Debbie, turn your head two inches to the right when you sing that line. And uh, I, don't, I don't worry about those sorts of things. As Eric said, that's, I never want to see a scratch tape. I would just, oh, I can't, right, oh. Exactly right. <laughs> uh, uh, I leave that up to the people that, that know better than I what, what angles are, are best for any given production. Um, yes. Um, you had the opportunity to mount all four productions now, and now you're ready to do the entire cycle. Have you, uh, are you planning any changes, uh, going back maybe for the first ones and making any kind of changes, or really just small things? Well, there are tiny changes. Of course, there are changes. There are changes due to, you know, with, with, if you think back to the early uh, productions, you go, well, yeah, maybe this was a bit too much or this was overstayed or something. So of course you do these little minor changes but there's also maybe more radical changes that come from the people who do it for the first time because we, ha we have pretty much the original cast but there are some, uh, some parts here and there where there'll be like a second cast and, and with these people come a new energy, new ideas, they have a different approach and, and you try to, I, I always try to stay open to, to uh, visions that aren't necessarily mine and they come in and they enrich the whole thing. So of course there are changes at that level also. Let's take, let's take two more questions for tonight. Yes, sir. Uh, Miss Boyd, I believe you're going to be singing Brun Brunhilde at least three or four times inside of two weeks this spring. And I'm just wondering, this must be like running a marathon for an opera singer. Do you sometimes wake up in the middle of the night knowing that this faces you and say, I don't know how I'm going to get to the finish line? Does that ever hop happen or is your training such that it just doesn't occur? I try not to let my head go there. <laughs> um, no, I'm not waking up in the middle of the night uh, worrying about anything at this point. Uh, I think in learning the roles initially, sure. But at this point, I have a, a pretty clear idea of, of what I want to do. And uh, we've done it before. And, and we have our contingency plan if something goes wrong. So um, I, I, I think I'm feeling pretty, pretty steady and looking forward to it. I should, I should just mention um, something I forgot to mention earlier. Since we are, there's another reason why we're here today in the, in the Apple store, which is that the Met has uh, recently made um, an agreement with Apple, which is to present our historic uh, radio and television broadcasts, as well as our most recent HD transmissions, including The Ring, uh, on iTunes and also on our new iPad app. So I'm sure that was a question one of you wanted to ask, and I just gave you the answer. Uh, <laughs> we have time for one more question? Yes, ma'am, in the back. Sorry, wait for your microphone, please. It's kind of a general question. I've been going to the opera for years, long before you had subtitles. How does it affect the singers now that you know that most people understand what you're singing, and it's not like just singing, you know, you know an opera song? Well, that goes with 
Debbie was saying before about the the acting and and uh, and and of course we as the performers we need to know what's going on all the time. I mean, not not our own parts, but everybody's part. Uh, I think it's important that you know, a lot of us will go if there's original source material, if there's a play that the libretto is based on, we'll go and read the play to see you know, what, what the composer and the librettist was dealing with and what they eliminated, what they kept. Uh, reading throughout the whole score, to you, you might not find something out something about your character from your own lines. You may find out something from what someone says about you in another scene. I mean, in, in, in Rheingold, the two giants say about Alberic, you know, this guy's been a pain in our butts for a long time. And, and Is that the literal translation? <laughs> word for word. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so you can see there is this, this history that, that the Giants and, and, and Alberich, they know each other. So when you get to the scene in Siegfried when he's talking to Fafner as the dragon, there's a familiarity there just because of of, of those lines and, and going back to original source material. And, and so uh, I think the, the titles are a wonderful thing. Uh, it makes it a night in the theater for everyone and everyone can understand what's being said. And, and, and it's more than just singing. I mean, mind you, singing is the, the crux of what opera is, but, uh, but it's also theater. So... Uh, it's also a lot of fun if you happen to have the chance to do something that has some, some comedy in it, because the audience laughs in the right places. Uh, you know, where, where there would be cricket chirping in the past, now they're laughing. Maybe not in the ring, but in other pieces. Well, th thank you all very much, and I hope to see some of you at the ring cycle.